Hi, this is Bernard Fraser, and you're listening to The Essence of Cool. On this episode, we continue our short series on the life and musical legacy of Canadian producer-singer-songwriter Tim Thorny. First, we meet up with drummer Randy Cook. Randy has played for superstars like Ringo Starr, The Eurythmics' Dave Stewart, Alanis Morissette, and so many others. Randy tells us of his years working with Tim on Alanis songs, jingles, on other artists' records, and of course, on Tim's solo albums. Then we'll chat with another of Tim's favorite people, Hill Korkutis, who in 2022 was the first woman ever to win the Juno Award for Best Recording Engineer of the Year. On that note, let's get started. Randy Cook, welcome to The Essence of Cool. It is my esteemed honor and pleasure, my friend. <laughs> look, look how sophisticated we sound, you and I. <laughs> you haven't changed a bit. To, I mean, the last time I saw you was 45 years ago, 40 years ago. And, and we were both one. Remember that day? So speaking of, man, you have come a long way from those days. Mm. That must have been some incredible journey. It's been uh, an amazing one. And uh, I can't tell you how grateful I am for, for every bit of it. Every up, every down, every new musical situation, every artist band. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm and I'm still living it like I, you know, and hopefully I will, you know, till I'm, you know, putting the teeth in the glass, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, even then, <laughs> yeah, I'm still, uh, you kids get out of my yard. Um, it's been amazing. And, uh, and, and that includes, uh, all of my years in Toronto. I, I still, Every couple of days, something comes up, somebody says something, or I get reminded of friends and family and musical situations and recordings and gigs I've done in clubs. You know, I was watching someone else's podcast the other day, and uh, it was Sekou Bumamba who, who's talking about uh, uh, his time with um, uh, Big Rec. And he was mentioning all these clubs on College Street Bar. And, you know, it, you know, once again, then zip, there I am back. And, you know, you had reached out to me about, about our darling Tim. And of course, all of that came flooding back. I went, I went on a deep dive on YouTube uh, and started listening to all of those things that we recorded. Anyways, you know, we'll get into that, but uh, it's uh, definitely a cherished uh, journey for sure. Yeah. So you we're catching up with you. You're in Boston right now, touring with five for fighting. Uh Oh yeah. 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 So what is a a day in the life of a drummer for hire? What is that like? (laughs) Well, it it can change. I mean, if you're on tour, you know, the tour quote, quote, tour life is very, very much like groundhog day. Yeah. Like you, you, uh, yesterday I was in a dressing room in, I don't even, I can't pronounce the, the city that we were just in. It was just a suburb of Boston. And, and, um, the Sean, uh, s- said, uh, what day is it? 
<laughs> I, I didn't know. I didn't know. I said, you know, I have no idea. What yeah. it is. I, I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't feel it's Sunday. Does it feel like Sunday? I said, no, but it doesn't feel like any particular day to me. Right. <laughs> so, so, you know, you get in, you know, on you know, when you're on tour, you get into a routine. It's all about routine. You know, a, a, after you get used to the routine and, and everybody sort of, sort of scatters, you know, on, on a day off if you're on tour, because you've been in each other's faces every day you're on a bus you're on stage you're like you know so it's not uncommon to 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 uh to find people off doing their own thing and it's you know nobody takes offense that hey are we all gonna hang out today you know everybody just kind of like just you know lets everybody else be so it it uh it's pretty cool though. I mean, you know, you get up the, you, you sleep through the night, the bus always rolls after the gig a couple hours later, once the stuff's packed up, uh, off you go, you sleep on the bus through the night, you wake up, you're in a new town, got a couple hours to do whatever you want. And, um, and then, and then it, then the routine kicks in, you know, you, you, uh, sound check dinner performance and then rinse and repeat. <laughs> and then when I, you know, when I'm back home, it's, it's, uh, typically if I'm doing fly dates with a band like Smash Mouth or, you know, Rita Wilson or whatever, you know, like sometimes Colby Clay has a couple of fly dates as opposed to a bus tour through the week. I'm, I'm poking in and out of the studio, cutting tracks, uh, more more often than not it's remote recording now people sending me files and me playing uh which is exactly how we ended up doing uh, uh villa freud right right so uh with adam so you know and so you know during the week it's it's just basically all about uh session stuff and uh you know laundry and buying kitty litter and then uh and then and then on weekends i'm, I'm hopping on a plane on a friday playing on a saturday and hopping back on a plane on a sunday that's that's the other side when you're not on a tour that's what that's for me that's what i'm doing right so do i get, get the best of both worlds you know do you get used to it yeah yeah you do and some people don't you know they get tired of it some people don't like flying or hotel i i like it i like being in different places i think it's a i still uh you know i'm looking out my window and you know it's downtown boston it's cool you know and you end up having friends and 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 uh being able to touch base with people that you you wouldn't be able to very often and you know that kind of thing you also get to connect and, and network and all that stuff you know yeah yeah you have played with recorded for some major heavyweights dave stewart of the eurythmics kelly clarkson you mentioned smash mouth you're on tour with five for fighting right now but i've got to ask you what does it feel like to be sitting on stage Play, I know where you're going. Playing with <laughs> and beside the most well-known drummer ever, Ringo Starr. Yeah. Well, it's it, it's not the first time that I've been asked that question, but I I relive that moment every time I answer it, and I you know it, it's it's pretty. The first thing that comes to mind is it's surreal. Yeah. Like you literally, you you know, he was always to my left, right? So I'm I'm on the right side, he's on the left side, and you literally look over and you literally question your life at that point. You're like, what, <laughs> what is, how is this, you know, how have the dominoes fallen that I'm right here 
And right there is that guy that everyone, including myself, grew up, you know, idolizing and, and see, you know, seeing and listening to and, and being a massive fan of. And, and so it, it's that it's a million layers of, of things at once. So that feeling of, you know, this is sort of, uh, um, very, very odd to relate to, I don't, you know, and then you're, uh, the first time I met, uh, Ringo was on stage at soundcheck, wow. um, you know, at our first gig, we had, the band had rehearsed in LA with Dave pri- pri- previously, but, um, uh, that's when I met him. And so, you know, th- yeah, I was nervous as, as one would be. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, there's, you're nervous to meet, uh, you know, a, a living legend an icon, but then as a drummer, there's a, a um, another level of anxiety, which comes along with playing with another drummer. When two drummers are playing, listen, it's not like two guitar players or two keyboard players in that drums have such, um, a hard, uh, impact, a hard, um, you know, attack. The, the, the anxiety of two drummers playing with each other is always going to be, are we going to flam a lot? Or is it going to sound horrible or good? Like, you know, and so I, I equate it to a dance. I let, I let Ringo lead a lot. So I'm basically making sure I'm following his time, which by the way is just uncanny. Great. Like he, the guy has such a beautiful internal clock. He doesn't like speed up crazy or slow down. You know what I mean? He just, when the song starts, it's like a freight train. He's got, he's got a great pocket and he sits in it and off he goes. And I just follow along. And if he goes for a drum fill, that's a triplet. Then I let him start. And then I would, I, I'm, I have ears enough to know why I'm going to, I'm going to triplet my way with him at the end of his fill. And right. it was like that. That's how I played with him. Right. You know, it's very interesting. So funny that his timing is so tight considering he's never played with a click track. Right? <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's annoying when someone's that naturally great <laughs> at something so annoying. You know, because I grew up playing the clicks because I, you know, I grew up with phase four and playing in a funk band and I, you know, it was all about, you know, dance music, you know, you know, there wasn't so much ebb and flow to that. You know what I mean? That was your job. You had, you know, so I had help. We were playing with tracks. We were playing with sequences and, you know, uh, but yeah, he, he, he does absolutely have great time. And, And of course a great. Uh, a great song sensibility, which is what he's known for. Yeah. You know, all of those iconic drum parts are part of his, his, you know, yeah, his yeah. playing. That's so great. Yeah. I, I get the impression, you know, cause I've listened to a lot of your work and it, it feels like, although you're always uh, ultimately mm-hmm. doing service to the song, it's like, you're kind of waiting for those little moments, you know, those little Randy. I, moments. I, I do. I do. I, uh, that's very, very interesting that you would, um, catch that because I do, I do like to, to try and squeeze in something that, that lets a more uh, educated listener or someone's ears that are trained a little more musically that they can go, Oh, okay, wait. I just heard a little thing between a lyric where it wasn't getting in the way and, it, it, it's demonstrating a little more ability than just a straight meat and potatoes, you know, drum group. And so you're, so you're right. I, I do try and find, and sometimes I get in trouble 
Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, there were, there were nights where, you know, uh, you know, I remember back in the day playing with Kim Mitchell, you know, they, there were a couple nights where after the story, got me go quit it, cut it out. <laughs> you know, you're, 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 it's too much, you know? And I, and admittedly I was like, okay, I'm sorry. You know? uh, but, but yeah, there you do. I like to, I do like to walk the fine line of where can I, express a little more mm -hmm. uh on that on that end in in a song without that's the thing without detracting from the thing that's important right. about the song which is the singer right. and the lyrics and the melody you know this is the thing to, to always you know that and i try and uh, impart that to other uh younger players you yeah. know this is what you know there are places you can I, get away with it and i know that's a funny phrase to use but really you are getting away with it right. because when you're in a session there's a producer on the other side of the glass he's got you under the microscope and he's he or she is going to be the one that goes hey <laughs> enough stop <laughs> you know you you really do get reined in right. and so that that there's an art form to i believe there's an art form to to being able to um, sneak in this and this or that once in a while and, 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 and get it past, yeah. you know, <laughs> I yeah. want to pick up on that point about <laughs> working with a producer in just a second. Uh, but uh, I was thinking about, you know, looking for those opportunities. And one of the albums that I've been listening to incessantly over the past week is Lisa Del Bello's horror. And holy shit, my friend, uh, there are moments oh. on that album where you are just shining. Um, oh, man, thank you. A couple of tracks where there's a lot of polyrhythmic stuff, tons of offbeats. And I'm, uh, you know, as the listener, I'm thinking, where the hell is the one, man? We've lost the one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, thank you so much. Thanks, buddy. I like, I, I, again, another, you know, memories come flooding back, you know, Lisa. Um, uh, my relationship with Lisa is so special in that she's, she's actually, uh, the very reason that I live in Los Angeles. Really? I remember sitting at the console in that studio beside Lisa, listening back to something. And, and I remember uh, it was a pivotal moment. She turned to me and she said, you know, you, you remember Lisa had already lived in Los Angeles yeah. and come back. Right. And she just turned to me and said, you know, you, you should be in Los Angeles. I, you really should. And, and, and I, you know, I, at that point, I remember going, Oh, I, I mean, you've heard it's really great. And you know, I like warm weather, haha. but I never forgot her going, no, seriously, you should seriously look into what you need to do to, to get out, you know, get, get your butt over there. Well, interesting. It's really interesting that she was responsible for getting you to LA and connecting you with a couple of people to get you going. She was also responsible for the person we're talking about today, Tim Thorny, about getting Tim from Winnipeg to Toronto and then introducing <laughs> him to all of the music people in Toronto and getting his career going unbelievable and you know by the way and we're going to get into it i mean i don't remember it you know the, toronto is such a, a tight-knit music scene there's so many so many fantastic writers and players i can't remember exactly how i came into the fold with uh tim but i mean you know it probably was lisa she seems to be the <laughs> conduit and yeah. you know uh, like she's like the god mother of of you know looking down across the city going i'm going to take you and place you over here and you know but uh um anyways you know the the same can be said about my relationship with tim and and when i started working uh at great big music which is what it was called down on, oh, on eastern yeah on 
on Eastern Half. That that spawned multiple projects, uh, uh, recordings that I did, recordings that led to tours that I did, um, musicians that I met, and meeting those musicians led to others. And that's how that 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 all works. You know, um, I, I, I'd love to tell you, I, other than circling back and we will talk about, uh, the, the CDs that, that I did with Tim, but Tim had a multifaceted effect on my career in that I was not just playing Tim Thorny's music that Tim Thorny wrote. I was also, he would hire me to do jingles. So they did a bunch of creepy music, did a bunch of jingles. And then Tim as a producer would hire me. Uh, to play drums on other albums that, uh, for other artists that he was producing, like uh, uh, Jimmy Rankin's songbook CD. Right. And I ended up touring with Jimmy. Wow. And so those okay. those experiences are all because of Tim, you know. Um, and I didn't play uh, live very much with Cassandra Vasek, but I got to do her record. a massive fan of not just Tim but anybody that Tim came in contact Tim just had an ear yeah. like he knew like he just attached himself to projects that were always amazing like whether it was a songwriting or the singer or the you know and then then Tim himself would get in front of a microphone and that's that scratchy soulful yeah you know voice would come out of this you know you look at him you go man that guy's a scary biker looking dude and then all of a sudden He's just this, this warm, you know, give me a big fat man hug kind of guy yeah. with his dog, you know? Yeah. And, and so, you know, that, that, that situation at great big was, was, uh, was pretty, pretty poignant. I mean, there's, you know, I've done, I've been able to work with some, some unbelievably uh, amazing people. And sometimes it's not just, it's just, a demo it's like a, an afternoon you know or th- you know i did i did three days once at great big music with alanis and it was just me and scott on upright and alanis on piano and me on drums and three days in a row i think they ran i don't i can't remember what format they were running but they just let it run they just let the the the, the thing record mm-hmm. Not so sure. I don't sure if it was taped at that point, but it might have been digital. But, but, and you know, Alanis would just go, yeah, Randy, just start a start a drum groove, start a loop kind of groove, and I would start playing, and she and we would just fall in, and then she would stream of consciousness, just start vocalizing wow. for hours. Then we take a food break and sit around and chat, and then we do it again. We did that for three days. So it, it's those situations that you know. That this is Tim bringing all of these these people together, and right. and um, I'm lucky to 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 have uh, been involved in it. And so, you know, not to mention, you know, I got to to be in the fold of that little brat pack. Tim had had a sort of a list of guys that that you always knew, you know, like Brent on keys. Like you always knew that you were just going to be surrounded by guys that were better than you, to be honest with you. Like, you know, 
Um, and, and, and it really like kicked your butt into developing your musicality and, and cause you wanted to bring your A game. If Tim called you for something like he didn't fuck around, right. like the, the, the most beautiful compliment Thorny ever gave me after a drum track was he just said, man, that just did not suck. <laughs> and that, That's brutal. You don't understand. Yeah. You don't understand. Many times, many times Tim was very, very kept in the studio. Like, you know, when he was producing he, that talk back, Mike would go on and you just hear, let's, uh, let's just, uh, let's just get, let's grab another one. Yeah. <laughs> and you were like, Oh shit. You know, maybe it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that he just, he just knew he, he had something that he was looking for. And when it hit his ears, you were, you were good to go. But that was just a beautiful, like, I just remember driving home that day going, wow. Okay. He, he does like me. <laughs> like that was the, you know, that was the, you know, one of the, one of the moments I'll never forget. And, and, um, but yeah, uh, that CD, the first CD that we did, uh, extenuating circumstances and was so beautiful. Like, like the songs, I mean, I'm not, I'm preaching to the choir, I'm sure, but to listen to those songs are, are so soulful yeah. and, and both on a lyrical level and just a vibe. Tim just had a vibe. You walked into the studio, the studio had a vibe. You, you talk, you know, he had a vibe and his music had a vibe. You know what I mean? And, and it came through in his writing and the recording process was always super laid back. And, and it was, it was an amazing time, yeah. you know, to, to be around him. And even when I moved to Los Angeles, it, it was, I was so grateful that, you know, he reached out at one point. He's like, Hey, you know, you're there. I'm here, but I'd love to have you play on some stuff. And, um, you know, we had uh, Adam at the helm now, right. you know, Adam Fair was going to produce it. So Adam was sort of quarterbacking those situations. And I got to play again on, on, yeah. on Villa Ford. And man, again, you know, he knocked it out of the park. Once again, you know, those songs are just timeless, yeah. you know. pointed out um tim had sort of this cadre of a select few people that were his go-to people why do you think he chose you i i'm hoping may i would be guessing but i'm hoping maybe because half because of of my my song sensibility and how i how i play that he would have heard me it would have you know it could have even started just from playing jingles it could have been started by by a couple of those you know 30 second uh, things and how any i think any producer is looking for consistency they're looking for musicality they're also looking at your personality how you blend in and remember you know you're hanging out with with people you know for hours on end and i i really believe that tim connected with me on a on a on a friendship level on a vibe level that that made sense it it paired well with him and my playing made sense to him because I, I i as we started knocking out songs on that on that first cd i think then he was like oh yeah we he could tell that i loved the music i was playing and so i'm going to be playing as uh, the, to the best of my ability and as musically as i can to serve the song um 
as I as I strive to all the time. And and I think he just recognized that. I think I think he'd 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 seen that glimpses of that maybe on other recordings or through working um, on just day to day sessions. And then to be you know to be asked to do his solo stuff. So that was special because you weren't just going in doing a seven up commercial. Right. Like this was, these were, these were songs that he wrote from his heart and he was singing and, it, you know, um, yeah, I, I count myself as one of the lucky ones to, to be a part of all of that. So I want to talk about Villa Freud a little bit. The uh, one thing I discovered in speaking with uh, Adam was that the album started out as a tabla based album. He did not want to have drums. And at some point, he said, fuck it, let's take this song and send it to Randy, right? <laughs> it came back, sure, sure. and he said, fuck it, let's send him another one. And that <laughs> came back, and he said, fuck it, just send them all. <laughs> yeah. See, see, you're, thank you for letting me know that, because I don't know that backstory right. at all. <laughs> and that's that's so, so brilliant to hear. Um when that first song came to me and I heard the tabla, I instantly, you know, had to have a quick conversation with Adam and go, okay, so how, how much of me versus, you know, and I just, you know, right. I, I, uh, I found a way to weave my way in and out of those rhythms without, you know, you know, mucking it up and playing all over them. And, you know, again, that is what's challenging because, they weren't they weren't going to go away well funny because they uh, so you sent back the tracks and then ultimately they ripped all of that tabla out and had the guy come in and redo the tabla over your drumming right <laughs> you know thank goodness because i probably sped up and slowed down like a bitch i get i no i'm i i, I, I doubt I, that <laughs> i think that that's always an amazing thing to 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 um let a drummer have that 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 heartbeat and that slight ebb you know what i mean and have guys yeah. after the fact get back in and redo stuff to that and i even feel that about loops when when someone sends me a drum loop and i play to that loop mm -hmm. i i like it when they go back in after and cut the loop back to me as opposed to cutting me to the loop right and uh right. it takes a lot more time in editing but but the result is you don't mess with the organic feel of that drummer that stays intact and the loop that was generated by a machine that's perfect and gridded if you were to now listen to it back after it was it was cut to the drummer it probably would sound not so good but right. when you hear both when you hear the loop cut to the drummer's natural feel you you hear the loop layer and it's like why does this sound so much better because the loop is playing along with the drummer not the drummer to the loop they haven't right. gridded they haven't quantized the drummer's performance to loop they've actually done the opposite right two very different you know both valid production methods but my my favorite is always the the latter yeah how much latitude did he typically give you to interpret songs and versus how you know how often did he provide notes? He wouldn't go, I want, make sure the snare's on two and four. Like, it was never that conversation. So, lots of latitude. And 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 that that recording process was kind of old school in that you, you would play that song 
as if you were the great thing was he had a studio, you know, imagine that, you know, imagine the ability and the advantage of everybody being plugged in and the microphones being on and everyone's recording. And so unlike a rehearsal where you go, you know, you rehearse Monday and then you rehearse Tuesday and you go, what, what was that great thing we did yesterday? And, and like, I can't remember which one that we liked, you know, more, all of that, all of that progression, all of those ideas, all of that process is amazing when you're doing it in a recording studio, because what if while they're, you're recording, there's a magic moment. You can stop, go back and go do that. That's the mm -hmm. winning approach. And that's how we recorded those two. So, so again, you know, Tim knew what he, he, he wanted and loved. He wasn't, and I love the fact that he wasn't going to out of the gate, push me in any direction uh, drum wise. And I, and I, even today I was listening to, to some of the, extenuating circumstances songs and and i I, rem, I remember in certain sections going wow you know yeah that the snare wasn't untuned for i i i played a different pattern and i just because it felt right for that section I, and i know that he would have just listened to it and went that's great you know i would have said hey how's that feeling he's he would have went either i love it or try something else and that was right. the cool things that he wasn't going to tell you that it was crap you know, right. Right. <laughs> but you knew if you didn't like it, you still knew, you know, right. He did have right. a little, a tiny crust to, to him. You know, he could be, you know, he could be, he could get a little grumpy at times. Right. But he always <laughs> knew, you know, he always was super grateful and appreciative of the people that were around him and we, him, you know, it was, it was very, uh, you know, a very mutual, uh, a, mutual, a mutual admiration sort of scenario when you were recording with Tim, you know. Yeah. Randy, I can't thank you enough for spending the time and, and regaling us with your experiences uh, working with Tim. Uh, it's been a magical hour. Appreciate it. And the same for me, my friend. The same for me. Thank you for asking me. Bill Kirkutis, welcome to The Essence of Cool. Thanks for having me. Um, first, congratulations on your Juno. It was huge. In the 46-year history, is this correct? In the 46-year history of the Junos, you are the first woman ever to have win, won uh, Recording Engineer of the Year. Mm -hmm. That's correct. As, how much has that changed your life? Um, I mean, it's been very overwhelming, but obviously very positive and, uh, yeah, just very grateful for the honor. Yeah. You dedicated your win to Tim. Tell me why you chose to do that. Um, Tim has probably been one of the primary champions of my career. Um, just from the get go of when we met, he was always very encouraging. He had this incredible belief in me. I think he had a belief in me before I even had a belief in myself um, in terms of my potential. And he opened up a lot of doors for me that I'm extremely grateful for. Like I truly believe that I wouldn't be in the spaces I am in now without his help and his encouragement. So in that moment, um, he's 
the first person I thought of, like, you know, I thought instantly that he would have been one of the first people I called. Um, yeah. And I just, I just wanted, I, I just wanted to remember him and, and have him be remembered in that moment as well. Yeah. I mean, it's great that he's getting such a notoriety, sadly, you know, uh, after he's passed. But uh, I noticed the other day that uh, Alanis in one of her concerts um, dedicated uh, a moment to Tim, which was wonderful. Yeah, I saw that too. It was yeah. beautiful. Yeah. How did you first get to know him? What were the circumstances under which you met? I think we had been kind of... Um, almost crossing paths for many years. Um, but I think it was like the tail end of the early two thousands. Like, I don't even know what you call that just before the 2010s. <laughs> what is that? The, the zeros? Knots. Some people call it the knots. I don't know. The, the knots. That's yeah. cool. That sounds fun. Um, yeah. So we kind of connected. He had, um, started listening to my music, um, of the band that I was in at the time, Drowning Girl. And then added me on Facebook and we just kind of started keeping touch and started chatting over Facebook initially. Um, although we'd had many mutual friends, like we initially actually bonded over our connection with Dal Bello because I know she played a role, um, in his early career. She was actually my first professional co-write that I ever did when I was 13 years old. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So we just talked about music and, and he always like was sharing my music, which I was really grateful for. And, um, eventually that relationship grew to into a friendship. And then also he started to offer me, um, like production writing and, uh, session gigs. So we started to collaborate creatively as well after that. Wow. What was your first impression of him when you first started to work together? Um, I was amazed at just how encouraging and open he was in the studio, because I think in the way that he approached, um, artists in the studio, I think it was particularly rare, um, is just very open, open to, to ideas. He was very generous with, with the space, I think. Yeah. And, um, and he's, he was freaking hilarious. Like that's one of the things that just stands out about him is he had this bizarre and whimsical sense of humor, very dry at times. Um, and we would always be smiling and laughing. Like my face would be hurting sitting in <laughs> sessions with him. <laughs> to your first point, um, a, a lot of people have said how generous he was with other people in a session that even though he was king of the hill that he really celebrated the artists he celebrated each and every musician i can't count the number of posts that i read of him posting about a song and making sure to credit each and every person no matter what their role was what does that say about him i think tim was just real and he didn't have an ego you know like what you saw with tim is what you got like there was no weird ulterior motive or anything and i think that um he truly realized that there was a magic in the collaborative process you know and um i think also this sensitivity and empathy of his came from the fact that he was an artist himself. And I think that that brought a very unique perspective to the way that he approached things, but he was also just such a generous and kind human being, you know, like, mm -hmm. so, um, he was just real. Do you remember what that first session was that you worked on with him? A lot of them actually started remotely. Like I had only actually stepped foot in Villa to work with him physically a few times. Um, 
yeah, we just, we were doing the remote recording even before the pandemic. He would just send me some tracks initially and he's like, Hey, I'd really love your ear on this or your perspective. And he gave me, he, he had a lot of trust in me, which I thought was really interesting coming from another producer. Cause usually when two producers get into the same space, it can be very hard to figure out what that dynamic is, um, in a co-production capacity, uh, but it was just it was just out of the love of collaborating. Sometimes I'd get songs and he'd be like, hey, could, do you want to just lay some instruments on this for me? And he'd just be open to it. And so we'd go back and forth. I'd just be sending tracks to him and Adam. They'd send me, you know, updated stems back. And, and that's that was a lot of our workflow. Um, and then outside of that, it was just I used to start most of my mornings for a good period of time with a phone call with Tim. And I'd sit on my porch, have a coffee, and we would just talk for hours about what we were working on or music or life or just anything. I want to read just something. It's an interview that Tim did with the great jazz pianist Bill King. Uh, it was for FYI News. Tim said that what kept him uh, behind the console and I quote, was looking for an elusive sound, a harmony, a chord that's great or a vibe that might be original. Do you have a memory or a story about being with Tim in the studio looking for that sort of elusive sound? I don't think that there's one particular moment. It's just this dynamic and feeling that we always had. Um, you know, in the times that we were in the actual space together, we would just be playing around, you know, like we would know that we would have to get something accomplished in that day, whether recording an artist vocal or laying down guitar or keys or whatever. And um, I just remember it's one of the few times that I've actually been able to sit there and experiment and play. So I think that that was just the journey that he took, uh, mm -hmm. which we always don't usually have that luxury. A lot of the time when we're going into sessions, you know, we kind of have to go in there and knock it out. And I really, loved that that was just his overall approach to music it's like let's just sit here play around with it and just keep trying things until they lock in and they feel right right he although he was a multi-instrumentalist in fact for the first couple of years back in the 80s when i was learning about tim through my good friend jody calero i thought he was a piano player as well as a singer <laughs> i didn't realize he was such an amazing guitarist but he yeah. had such a love affair with the guitar what what was it about the guitar that drew him to it do you think I feel that as as musicians, we're constantly trying to find a way to um, find a, find an outlet that can kind of express our voice in an unspoken way. And I think that, you know, the guitar just happened to be one of those things that Tim gravitated towards that just spoke another layer of what he was trying to convey as a storyteller, you know, yeah. Yeah. And, and he was a very beautiful player and he was very tasteful and... At a, he he was also a gear freak. Like he had such an appreciation for his guitars and his amps, and um, yeah, like we used to talk about geek out over gear a lot. And I think it was just another way for him to express himself, you know, prolifically. And he was quite prolific. Right. If you were to describe Tim to somebody who knew nothing about him, how would you describe him? <laughs> oh. I mean, there's so many ways to describe him. He was larger than life. He was really like a caricature. I can't, there's not a lot of people that you can come across where you're like, is this person from a movie? Um, I mean, he he brought people together. He was hilarious. His wisdom was hilarious. He kind of reminded me of Lester Bangs. Right. You know, like where 
he would just go on these tangents of wisdom and hilarity and um yeah and he just told it like it was you know i the, the i think the i can't really put him into one word because he was so complex <laughs> jody calero i mentioned before who was a uh, a partner with Tim at Einstein Brothers uh, back in the 80s and early 90s, uh, said that Tim had a bit of the monk about him in that he was just totally selfless and that he uh, had this sort of true blue way of wanting to nurture an artist to get them to the point where, you know, he felt they needed to be. It was never about him. It was always about the artist. Talk to me about that. Did you ever see that in artists that he worked with? Absolutely. I saw that in the artist he worked with, but I also saw it in just everybody he worked with in general. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't just the artist that he would treat that way. He treated his musicians that way. Um, you know, I, and I think he understood that empathy and trust that people needed in those moments of vulnerability um, in order to draw out that real stuff. Like mm -hmm. we talked about how he is waiting for those moments, those real moments, that sound, right, to, to emerge. And I think that that's because of the trust that he had in the artist. He knew that, like, in order to get the best from the artist, he couldn't impose his will on the artist. And I think that um, that's a gift that many artists don't get in that space, right? Yeah. So I learned a lot, um, and I really resonated with him on that level. I think that's why we worked so well together is we – come from that approach of wanting to nurture the artist and knowing that the best way to get these things is to have really meaningful relationships with people yeah. and trust. Yeah. Either in the recording world or just as a friend, what is your fondest memory of Tim? <sighs> it's hard to pick one. <laughs> I think one of the moments that stand out to me now um, was just sitting on the back patio at Villa and he had brought over, uh, we were working with a young artist at the time and he knew that I loved scotch and he didn't really drink, but he brought me over this expensive bottle of scotch that he had in his house that was just sitting around for years. Um, and we just sat on his back patio. And as I said, he didn't really drink, but just out of the spirit of being together and having this conversation, he just like poured himself a little splash. And I think we sat there for several hours and just talked about every, everything. And he was so easy to talk to. Like it was so easy to just call up Tim for a second and then spend hours on the phone with him. And by the end of the conversation, you've not only solved, you know, the day's problems, but you solved the world's problems. Like it's it just... <laughs> It was endless and abundant. Um, and I remember this one particular conversation, like he just was talking about his experiences growing up in Winnipeg and, um, you know, a lot of the random sessions that he did in LA and just speaking about the golden age, essentially of music that I didn't get to really experience in that same way because I came into the music industry just as Napster was taking over and everything was shifting. And so you hear about the glory days of like the exorbitant amounts of money that people were spending on like commercial sessions yeah. and all this stuff. And, um, and while in doing so and sharing his experiences, just imparting this wisdom that, you know, I just grasped onto and I carry to this day, you know? And so that, that was a very special moment where I really got to have, 
a moment with him just to hear about his life and hear him talk. What do you think, uh, or did he ever intimate to you what he was most proud of looking across his career? I don't know. I don't think Tim really dwelled on stuff like that. Um, I think he lived in the moment. Mm. I think he was very grateful for every single thing that he had accomplished. Absolutely. Um, But he was really about being present and just making things and being content in that moment. And um, I think that's what also made him so special too, is like he had accomplished so much, but he didn't really talk about those things. Like he would tell stories about maybe those times in his life, but um, he was very humble. Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned uh, an interview uh, that he did with Bill King a couple of years ago. And uh, one of the questions that Bill asked was what is putting a smile in your heart today? And he responded, and I quote, for the last two years, I've been involving Hill Percutis with everything I do, whether as a musician or writer, arranging or singing, she's the future. Excellent work ethic, great ideas, extremely talented. When I get her ideas back, it always makes me smile. How does that make you feel? Sorry. That makes me feel emotional. I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, Yeah. No, you just like, you know, you miss, you miss working with, with him, you know? And I think that he left a very wide gap in a lot of people's lives. So, yeah. Um, As evidenced by some of the really emotional uh, Facebook posts uh, that people made, such as you. Um, And if I may be so bold, uh, I just want to read a couple (laughs) of excerpts of your post about Tim. Um, You said he was larger than life. He was generous and empathetic. He brought so many people together. He empowered and nurtured so many people. He created so, so many incredible things. He was one of the realest humans I have ever met. He was inspiring and bold and hilarious. And he told it like it is. My friend Jules, who I met because of Tim, always jokes that Tim is her fairy godmother. I always resonated with that. He was magic and made magic happen. He taught us so much. He taught us to be uh, to live on our own terms unapologetically. He was a rare gem of a friend. I'm, I will miss having epic conversations with him that lasted for hours on the phone, but felt like mere minutes. Tim, you lived epically. You lived, <laughs> I'm getting choked up here, sir. You lived so free and beautifully. Rest in paradise, my friend. I love you, man. Um, what, looking back, what, what thoughts do you have about him? Um, what are the first things that come to mind in your memory as you, as you think about Tim? Um, just immense gratitude. You know, I think it's so special to be able to experience those magical human beings. I think, you know, everybody has their magic, but every so often you cross paths with a kindred spirit and, um, to me, Tim felt like a kindred spirit. And uh, it wasn't just the fact that we were both crazy Aquarians that would go on these <laughs> tangents. But um, yeah, I just feel so grateful and honored to have been like a little blip in his incredible journey on Earth. Yeah. What was your favorite Tim project to work on? And why? Ooh. You know, we worked... Uh, with a friend of ours called uh, named Nell Balaban. And that was, I think one of the last projects that we worked on together. And it, it was, uh, 
it was just a really fun project to to work on. I think Tim just was really open in the creative process. We didn't really know what direction it was going in. And it was one of those things, as we spoke about earlier, where we were just going back and forth, trying to find the magic till it hit. And we found these really beautiful moments. And it was interesting to experience that, I think, in retrospect, looking back, because I think that's the first time that I had gone on that journey in a remote way, you know, Nell was based in New York, Tim was in Singhampton, I was in Toronto. Um, And we managed to find that remotely, which usually I've only really in those moments, like found that in a space where everyone's together. And, And I just realized the power of music, it was kind of a very powerful moment. Um, yeah. And I just, I loved, I, I don't know. I loved what we created out of that. You partnered on songs. You were songwriting partners for um, here and there, I'm guessing. What was that process like of working on a song with Tim and t- did it sort of take a, um, a typical spin in terms of who did what or how did it start and what was it like? We wrote a couple of songs together um, and it was mainly in the capacity of um, adding bits of things here and there. And again, that was done really remotely. So it was kind of a bit of a broken up um, experience. Mm. Like we hadn't actually sat down together in a room and and written a song from scratch in that way. Most of our collaborations really came from a a production and musical, like as a musician, session musician capacity. But there there were moments, um, I mean, he, he did have an impeccable ear for melody you know and so a lot of the feedback that we'd be getting while you know going back and forth on song ideas you know it's just very intuitive um approach to to melody and structure and arrangement um and yeah and and that's actually one of my regrets well I guess you can't really have regrets but like I I wish that we had had that experience of of writing more it just wasn't a huge part of what we explored together Mm -hmm. There was something really remarkable uh, remarkable about how he approached songwriting. Uh, he could take a really sort of staid, formulaic structure, you know, a G, a, like a GCD thing or something like that, but he would infuse it with these really fresh elements to make it sound completely different. Um, I've been listening to Villa Freud um, mm-hmm for well <laughs> pretty much 24 7 for the last couple of weeks and um, i'm thinking about um, songs like too far gone where mm-hmm. the song sounds like it's an e but he rarely ever resolves it in the e is just he keeps going somewhere else and builds this wonderful tension yeah, yeah. What was it about his approach that made things sound so different? To be honest, I don't think it was a conscious thing. I think that that's the thing about Tim. It, it was a feeling thing, mm-hmm. right? And and so I think when you're not in that cerebral headspace when you create, that allows you to just explore things that aren't conventional. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the place that Tim preferred to create from, right? And 
I don't think he was interested in doing what everybody else was doing. Like he wasn't interested in formulaic things. Even a lot of the music that he listened to, there was nothing really formulaic about it. It was stuff that had guts. Like he loved the Beatles and that's all about guts. It's about rawness. Right. Um, and a lot of the stuff that he sent me on YouTube links or even the fact that he liked my music. Like I was doing some weird shit. I don't even know. <laughs> like, <laughs> there, uh, it, there was a lot of quirks in that kind of stuff. And I think he tended to grab gravitate towards that stuff. Um, and yeah, and that, and that's just a testament to where he came from in general. Like he was a very heart oriented person. Um, and that radiated through music. It, it radiated from him, you know, even in his relationships. He was just a very genuine person. Yeah, yeah. Um, as evidenced by some of the um, pretty raw, interesting lyrics that he's written. Um, Absolutely. Kim Zek once said that uh, he was asking Tim about where he found inspiration. And it was this is Tim's response was essentially just look around you. Everything you see <laughs> is either lyrical or musical. So pick something, right? True. <laughs> is that how yeah. you find found him in terms of the songwriting is just pick something out of a hat. He'd look at something and that was inspiration. Absolutely. Um, you know, he was a genuine artist in that way, right? Yeah. There was nothing, there was no, Pre preconditioning of like oh the, or premeditation rather of okay this is what I'm coming in to do, you know it, it's I found that going back to like what I was saying about him being very in the moment, um, just in general like he didn't really dwell on anything it was just what am I and that's not to say that he didn't like he was very contemplative like as I said there was a lot of wisdom <laughs> exuding out of him at all times. Um, but yeah, it, I think it's just, he had a very visceral approach to things and it was very in the moment, if that makes sense. Like the, it's very hard to describe the creative process. Right. Um, but from my impression of how he approached things, yeah, it's like, it, it, it was just very intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, were you with him in those final months? We spoke a lot. Um, I unfortunately, because of the pandemic, I wasn't able to see him. We were in lockdowns, right. but we did keep in touch. You know? How was he handling it knowing? I mean, clearly through his posts, he knew the end was coming. Um, how was he handling it? I mean, to to me, and this is the only thing I can speak to, is, is my conversations with him. Um, he handled it I would say very courageously I mean I never got the inkling that he was scared he was just appreciating the moments that he had um and doing so with humor which I think is totally Tim right what final thoughts can you impart what things do you do you think people should know about him I mean, he was a gift, and I, I, I think that he has left this incredible legacy of art and creations um, that people can continue to unpack in the years to come. Um, but I think that Tim 
should be remembered by his generosity and his empathy and his love um, and his nurturing nature and the fact that he brought so many people together, yeah, you know, yeah. and I think, and the fact that he was truly one of the most genuine people <laughs> that you could ever cross paths with, you know, and um, yeah, I mean, I'm, de I definitely think about him every single day. Every time I walk into a studio, I think of Tim, yeah. you know, and that's, uh, that's beautiful. I love that. I can still carry him with me, even though I can't call him up every day. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Tim song or jingle? <laughs> I mean, he played me a lot of the the children's stuff that he did. I really loved the roly poly oly yeah. stuff that he did. Um, yeah, he's actually he coached me a lot getting into the the children's TV world. He he, those are a lot of the doors that he opened up for me, and right. he just knew that that world so well. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, and and he was just so free with the way that he wrote and approach that music, which I think is so important, like being a grown up writing kids music and trying to think from that perspective, I think it'd be so hard, but it, it just spoke to the imagination that he had. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of his own music, I really also love the work that he did with Del Bello on that album, right? Like it's one of my favorite. The drastic Measures. Yeah. The Drastic Measures record. I mean, I'm, we're b both huge Del Bello fans and that was, she was one of my first, um, introductions to like seeing a woman producing and I actually didn't realize that Tim had written on that album until after we had met um but yeah I loved his work on that in terms of I mean the Villa Freud album is is one of my favorite things that he did um uh, Too Far Gone yeah. is a song that stands out yeah. just um yeah, I mean, it's hard to choose something because there were many eras of Tim, yeah. right? <laughs> there, there were many eras of Tim. There was such a prolific body of work. And and I'm sure there's there's like a ton of stuff that I haven't even heard yet that I'm sure I'll still be uncovering and, and immersing myself within, you know, for the years to come. Did he ever share any stories about the, the big bad days of advertising, dealing with some of the big execs and... Uh, cranky clients a little bit i think a lot of those things that i heard though came afterwards like i i started reading stories after he had passed that people were sharing online and um you know i think there was a story where he was like sitting in a robe with a wine glass in the middle of the day like working <laughs> working it's just so tim um yeah i mean he did share share some stories i can't necessarily pinpoint one in particular right now but it always came down to just the joy of doing things like that was the one takeaway that I had, even within the ad advertising world, which can be very cutthroat and very stressful. Like um, the impression he always left is just how much fun he, he was having. Like right. he would just take the piss out of situations. Right. And I think that that was one of the most hilarious things about him. Like he didn't take anything too seriously. Jody called them the, uh, the bad boys of the ad world. <laughs> I believe it. It's funny, he, he told me the story once when we were um, just hanging out in my studio. He had come over to drop off. He would always lend me this amazing gear, like, he, and he dropped off his Echoplex one day, oh, <laughs> which was really awesome. He's like, yeah, just, like, play around with this. Um, and we were hanging out. It was me, Tim, and, and our mutual friend, Jules, that he had introduced me to that has since become a really dear friend of mine as well. And he was telling me about how he would like to screw with the union every so often by just like ch 
changing his middle name. (laughs) (laughs) And so every few weeks he would just get his assistant to call in and like all his checks would have to, the names on his checks would have to change. And so one of his uh, middle names I think that he had put was like Tim Sparkle Thorny. And then <laughs> I actually have him telling the story on video um, and I watch it every so often because it just brings me into like, it pretty much sums up who Tim was in his telling of the story, um, mm-hmm. but never taking things too seriously, trying to add humor or find humor in things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His name ended up being Tim Pigweed Thorny, I think <laughs> at some point too. But, <laughs> and it's crazy because after he passed away within a week, I, I saw this giant weed growing in my garden. I was like, what the hell is that? I've never seen that before. And I have that plant identification app on my phone and it was a freaking pigweed. I was like, (laughs) are you serious? And my friend had just sent me that video. My friend Jules had just sent me that video. And so I was like, okay, I feel like, I feel like Tim's still here. Yeah. That's Um, so cool. And I left the pigweed in my garden. I'm like, I'm not getting rid of this. (laughs) No. It ended up just becoming this tall giant thing, just like Tim. And so I named it Tim. Oh, that's amazing. Listen, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. It was so nice to chat with you. My deepest thanks to Hill and Randy for sharing a little bit about their work and profound friendship with Tim. Next time, we'll close this season of The Essence of Cool with a conversation with my old friend, former Much Music VJ Erica M., who tells us about her 10-year songwriting partnership with Tim and how Alanis Morissette caused their breakup. I joke. Well, sort of. Until next time, stay safe and please support independent artists. Oh.